us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lundu Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, trading, and life. And in a little bit, I'm going to talk about my experiences during the crash of 1987, as well as some of the lessons I learned. But first, I want to talk about the number five. It's a very significant number in my life this week. For various reasons that don't really matter, one of my kids went to public school and one of my kids went to private school. My daughter went to the private Catholic school. And part of going to a private Catholic school is parents are required to do what's known as service. It's basically volunteer hours and you have to do a certain number of volunteer hours every year. That could be anything from being a lunch monitor to participating in their version of the PTA or what I chose to do, which is to volunteer for bingo. And that meant that every third Monday for nine years, I had to report to the school gym where 300 people played bingo for six or seven hours. Now, the demographic of the bingo crowd was split into two groups, senior citizens and recovering addicts. I'm not exactly sure what part of the recovery process bingo fulfills. But if you looked at a standard table that we would have there in the gym, there's 12 people at the table. And so you'd have about 11 of them who are 65 or over. And then you'd have a 24-year-old meth head. But the funny thing was, the elderly population of the bingo game was in such bad shape that comparatively, the meth heads and the addicts looked like Olympic gods. Every week I would watch as a cavalcade of old people would walk into the gym. Walk's really the wrong word. They would roll into the gym. They would limp into the gym. They would be assisted into the gym along with their wheelchairs and their walkers and their canes. And every single one of them had the same body shape, that pear shape where the midsection is really extended and really huge. And you could just see the pain in their joints, in their knees, and in their hips. They all looked like they were just in discomfort every single minute. Now, watching them for nine years, there were two questions. How and when? How did they get this way? And when did it happen? The how was easy because as you walked around the gym in front of every one of these people, I mean, every one of them would be bags of Funyuns and Doritos and Lay's potato chips. There would be cakes and pies and cookies and cupcakes. And almost all of them had 32 ounce big gulps filled with soda. And for six hours, they would just plow through these things like a like a combine. And I'm pretty sure that they didn't eat any different when they weren't at bingo. So the, the how did they get in this shape? That's easy. But it was the when that really bothered me because I knew every one of those people started out like me. They started out 
young, fit, thin, in shape. And at some point, they went from the world of the healthy to the world of the, I guess, sick, the unhealthy. I don't know what you want to call it. And it kind of freaked me out because like one of the guys that was there actually was on Omaha Beach for D-Day. So he had to be a young, lean, aggressive guy at some point. And now every movement that he made looked painful. Even when he was grabbing his fluffernutters and his uh, Fig Newtons and his Funyuns. And I was thinking, I don't want to be that person. I have to be on watch for that moment when I transition from being healthy to unhealthy. Of course, it's not a day. It doesn't just happen where you go to sleep on Friday night and you wake up on Saturday and you're out of shape. It's something that happens over time and it probably happens so slowly that it sneaks up on you. And that was even more concerning for me. I was always thinking to myself, I have to guard against that. I mean, I know that at some point, life and years and our genetics are going to take over, but I want to be as healthy as long as I can. So that was always in the back of my mind. But on the other hand, I've been thin my whole life. So I thought, well, maybe I won't have to worry about that. Right around the middle of COVID, I started pushing pretty big weight for myself. I'm usually about 170, which is right around the weight that I was at when I graduated high school. I got to like 196. It was from being sedentary. It was from eating too much crap. It was from drinking too much booze. And so in the middle of COVID, I found hiking and that helped a lot. I got out there and I exercised and always in the back of my mind, don't want to get to that tipping point because I know what happened with these folks because I saw it with my mom. My mom was always in pretty good shape growing up, but then there was a period where she, her knee was starting to hurt a little bit, so she didn't move as much, and because she didn't move as much, she started to gain some more weight, and then the weight hurt her joints more, then her other knee hurt because she was favoring one knee, then her hips, and then it was just this vicious cycle where she couldn't get out of it, and finally, she had to move out to uh, Nevada, and uh, fortunately, my brother-in-law is an orthopedic surgeon, and he did work on her knees and fixed her up, and she was able to get a, a second wind and lose some of that weight. But it was a big 10 or 15-year period where she was really uncomfortable. Again, I just didn't want to be in that spot. So I got out and I started hiking, but I'd never really done any weightlifting. I did it in high school when I was on the football team, but I think the last weight I lifted, I was maybe 19 or 20. And so I kept thinking, well, I, I, I want to do something like that, some sort of strength training. Because one thing they tell you, if you ask a doctor, you say, you know, how do I stay healthy as I get older? The first thing they'll tell you is don't fall, right? Don't fall because you fall, you break stuff, and then it's very problematic. And one of the ways you can help yourself to not fall is to have a strong core. So I thought, okay, I need to do that. But I didn't know where to start. And I was a little worried that over 50, if I start the wrong way, I could really hurt myself. But I got inspiration from my friend, Phil Perlman. Dr. Phil Perlman, who writes the fantastic Prime Cuts Substack newsletter. Now, Prime Cuts is all about physical, mental, and emotional health, but with a little bit of a slant towards those of us that are older. 
I think the stuff he talks about applies to anybody. But definitely if you're 40 or over, he, he talks a lot about that age group and how to um, strategically and intelligently stay in shape. So he had this article that talked about the four things you need to do in order to stay, stay in shape. And one of them was push-ups, one was deep knee bends, uh, one was sit-ups, and the other was pull-ups. So these are like the four core things that you can start with, and then you can build from there. So I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing these exercises. So I ordered a pull-up bar, a freestanding pull-up bar, and I got it about, oh, two months ago. Now, Phil had done a video on his 55th birthday where he wanted to do 20 pull-ups. That was his goal. He only did 18, but he videotaped himself doing that. And I remember when he put that video out, I thought to myself, really? 18? 18 pull-ups? Is, is that really something you want to videotape? I mean, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like that many pull-ups, Phil. So I got my pull-up bar, got it all set up. It's in the garage. I have this whole workout area there. Jumped up on the bar and did zero. I did zero pull-ups. Like, I'm not kidding. I could not do one pull-up. At first I thought, oh, this is silly. Like, and I, I'll try a little bit harder. And I could not do one pull-up. Now, I told Phil this story about three weeks ago when he was out here for uh, Future Proof. I literally said to him, I said, you know, I looked at your video and I thought, really, 18? <laughs> and then you know how many I did? Zero. I did zero. And thank God Phil is a great supportive, fun guy. He said, dude, it's tough. You just got to work up to it. And I said, yeah, I get it. So I got online and I looked at videos for doing pull-ups over 50. Like literally, like if you're starting to do pull-ups from ground zero and you're over 50, how do you do it? And it's a fucking process, man. It is a process. It starts with just hanging. You do these 30 second hangs and you think to yourself, what's, how, it's, what's so hard about that? Just hanging on a bar. It's hard. It's really hard. Then after you've done that, and by the way, you just don't do that and then transition to the next thing. You need to do that for like a week because one of the things about starting to do pull-ups after 50 is that you could really hurt yourself. Think about it. How many times in your regular life do you do that pull-up motion? Like zero. And if you think even more about it, like I haven't done a pull-up since I was probably in my 20s. I, I can tell you the last time I did a pull-up. The last time I did a pull-up, I was with my buddies somewhere, probably 21, 22, 23, drinking somewhere. And there was uh, either we were by a school or maybe, I don't know, something. And I ran over to a, a pull-up bar and uh, I did a pull-up. Like, that's the last time I did a pull-up. So if you jump into it too fast, if you transition through the process too fast, you can really hurt yourself and the last thing I wanted to do when trying to get in shape is to injure myself. And then, then you just have to get back to even before you can even progress to, to getting in the shape you wanted to be in. So I had to do these hangs. I'm doing these hangs. And then I had to do these shoulder, I don't know, the shoulder rolls or shoulder. Basically, the first part of a pull-up is not your arms. It's actually your shoulders. Your shoulders pulling up a little bit. If you watch somebody in slow motion, their shoulders will pull them up and then the arms kick in. 
So I had to do a series of those for a week. Then I had to get pull-up bands. I sent away to Amazon and they send you these five different bands. They're like kind of like a neoprene type of band. There's a really thick one and then it goes all the way down to a real thin one. And the idea behind that is you start off with the thick band. You, you basically put your knee over it and you use it to help you do the pull-ups. Um, so I had to do those. I had to go through a series of those. I also had to do negative pull-ups where you get up on a stool and you're already up on the bar and then you lower yourself down slowly. I did this over about a four, four and a half week process. And it was tough. It was tough. But this week, I did five fucking pull-ups unassisted by myself. And I can't tell you how jacked I am about it. I mean, it's it seems so simple and so silly. Five pull-ups, big deal. But from where I was six weeks ago till now, it seems like a quantum leap. And uh, I got to figure out where I'm going to go with this because although I do want to stay in shape, I don't want to push it too much. I have a, a friend who is a runner. And a couple years ago, I started doing some running. And I remember I was trying to improve my time every time I, I ran. And I kind of ended up hurting my my uh, my ankles. And I was telling him about, I said, how do you get past this? He said, you're not 18. You're not trying to better yourself every time you do it. You are 55, or back then I was 52. You're trying to get to a level that gives you exercise, that gives you cardio, that keeps you in shape. And then that's it, right? There's no like you know, breaking the mile. You, you're, your body is on the downside. It's not on the upside like when you're young. So I got to figure out where I'm getting to and, and where I want to maintain. But I tell you, I'm so jacked. I'm so jacked with these five pull-ups. And um, I would highly recommend to anybody out there that's thinking about getting in shape, get a pull-up bar, get those um, pull-up bands, go through the process. One of the things about um, this, one of the side effects is my drumming is fantastic. Like I can feel so much more power in my arms and my wrists and I have more flexibility. So there's all these other ancillary benefits. Um, I feel my core uh getting stronger. Um, so it's, it's across the board. It's been a win-win situation. And, uh, I highly recommend it to anyone out there that's thinking of getting into shape over 50. Uh, is this the lunt loop? I was there. It's a weird thing to hear. It's something that you associate with old people. I used to hear that phrase from my grandparents and my great aunts and uncles growing up. I was there during the civil rights marches. I was there during World War II. I was there during the Great Depression. It's weird to hear. It's even weirder to say because I was there in 1987 when the stock market crashed. In fact, it was 35 years ago this week that we had the greatest one day. I think it's the greatest one day crash ever when the market dropped 23%. Just to give that a little bit of context, if that were to happen today, that would mean the S&P dropping 863 points in one day. Or for those of you that prefer the Dow, 7,150 Dow points in one day. It was incredible. So I want to just 
take you on a quick tour of where I was and what happened that day and then leave you with five lessons that I learned from the crash of 1987. But as with everything, let me give you a little bit of context. So in 1987, I was 20 years old. I had kind of decided to go to college, but not really going to college. So I was taking classes ad hoc at community college. And I was interested in the market. I'd always been fascinated by the the financial section of, of the newspaper. I bought my first stock two years earlier, right after I turned uh, 18. I turned 18 in September. I bought my first stock in October. So this was two years after I bought my first stock. I wasn't real heavy into the market. I had a couple thousand dollars, but I thought I was pretty savvy. I thought I knew how things worked. I'd been fairly successful in my first few trades. So I thought, yeah, this is so easy. Now, I was taking a class at community college called, I can't remember the exact name, but it was really one of the first classes that ever focused on stocks. It was called, um, I think it was called analysis of securities, something like that. And the teacher was Mr. Simpson. I don't remember exactly what Mr. Simpson's qualifications were. He seemed like he was a very vanilla type investor. If I remember correctly, The class had a lot of emphasis on price to earning ratios and fundamentals. It certainly there was no technical analysis. I didn't learn about technical analysis until like the early 90s. But he seemed like he knew what was happening. And we actually had a textbook that talked about securities analysis. So I thought, okay, I'm doing it. I am involved and I'm I'm making a path and a course for my life. And this was this what I'm going to do. At the time, I had a after-school job that involved deliveries for a interior design firm that I was working at. I had a 72 Volkswagen bus with an AM radio only. And so after work, I would go to the interior design showroom and they would have me deliver stuff out to various places. So I was in class that morning and I remember, you know, there being a big buzz And there was no internet back then. There was no cell phones. There was no Twitter. So you were picking up pieces of information here and there. You'd hear a little bit on the radio. You'd hear a little bit from a friend or something. And I got into class and I remember the market being down a decent amount. And I remember Mr. Simpson coming out and saying, okay, now the market's down and we've all seen this, but don't freak out. You know, this is normal stuff that the market does. People forget that the market had actually been falling for a couple weeks going into uh, the, the big crash. So he was like, you know, very like, don't worry, this is okay. And the class was 90 minutes. And I remember as the class went on, he kept getting updates. Like someone kept coming into the class every 15 minutes and saying, the Dow is down X amount. And he was like, what? <laughs> and he, he'd say, okay, now the Dow is down because back then nobody was quoting the S&P, the Dow is down X amount, but it's no big deal. By the end of the the class, you could tell he was worried. So class is over. I get in my car and I go to my job. I pick up my things to drop off and I'm getting in the car and listening to KMNY, which is KMNY 1600. It was the first all money radio out here in Southern California. There was a guy on there called Buzz Schwartz old school guy. He had to be in his 60s at that time and he had seen everything and nothing phased him. Same sort of deal. He started out like, 
yeah, don't worry about it. You know, this is normal market cycles, a little bit, you know, more than, than usual, but, uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't sweat it. This is probably about nine 30 in the morning. I had my first classes like at seven 30. So I think it was out at nine, probably at nine 30, 10. And I was doing these deliveries every 15 minutes and every 15 minutes or so I would get back in the car turned on KMNY and they would give an update. And it was just like crazy. It kept going down more and more and more. And then you started to hear like real panic in this guy's voice. And then you started hearing all these people calling in. They were freaking out. And that just kept going on and on. And you thought, well, at some point it's going to bounce, right? It's down, you know, it's down 5%, 7%, 9%. We didn't have any, um, any uh, circuit breakers back then. So the market just kept falling and falling and falling. And if I remember correctly, by the end of the day, it was at the dead lows. I don't think there was any bounce. And people were stunned. I mean, people were just stunned that the market could drop 23% in one day. Now, I didn't come from a rich family. My family was lower middle class at best. I didn't have any rich aunts and uncles, but I did have what I guess you would call a spinster great aunt. I don't know if a spinster is someone that is single or just doesn't have kids, but she was married, but never had kids. She was probably in her mid to late sixties at this time. And I was her favorite uh, nephew. In fact, I think I was her only nephew. It was my sister and it was me. For some reason, she took a shine to me. And I remember when I was 16 or 17, she told me, she said, when we die, when your uncle and I pass away, we're leaving you our stock portfolio. And of course, I was so jacked because I was into stocks, but I didn't have any money at that time at 16. I didn't have any stocks. So I thought this would be so great. I'll start with a portfolio. And she eventually passed away, but between when she had promised to leave me the stock portfolio and when she passed away, my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor, pretty much a fatal brain tumor. And so she had changed her will to leave that to my mom and dad because she figured they needed the money, which I get it. I get it. Uh, I was a little disappointed, but I, I, I got what was going on. But I still wanted to be involved in whatever my dad was going to do with that portfolio. I actually pulled out a old um, copy of her will that shows exactly what um, she left to my parents. I remember, if I remember correctly, it totaled about fifty to $70,000, which was not a, not a trifling sum back in 1987. And as I look at these different stocks, the, the first thing that jumps out to me is how many of these don't exist anymore. And the other thing that jumps out at me is how some of these were really regional. Like she bought stocks based upon where she lived. Uh, so let me give you, for example, 150 shares of CSX Corporation. Now, CSX is still around. Um, 200 shares of General Motors. General Motors is still around. But there were also 20 shares of Electronic Data Systems, which was EDS. That was Ross Perot's company. I think they got bought out by Hewlett Packard at some point. There were 100 shares of General Telephone of California, which out in Southern California, we knew as GTE. It was a regional phone company. We don't have those anymore. That got bought by Bell Atlantic, I think, at some point. 
Uh, she had 100 shares of ITT Corporation, which I think is still a public stock. Uh, what else did she have? She had 288. I, I'm assuming that's because of, uh, of dividends. 288 shares of Security Pacific Corporation. That was a regional bank out here in Southern California, which got bought by B of A. Uh, she had 100 shares of Transamerica. Again, she lived up in Kentfield, which was north of San Francisco. Transamerica, that's the big pyramid building that's there. They got bought out by a company called Aegean from the Netherlands, I think uh, in the 2000s. She had 100 shares of Utah Power and Light Company. Originally born and raised in Utah. For some reason, she must have connected those two. They got bought out. I think they're called Rocky Mountain Power. And finally, she had 100 shares of Warner Lambert, which many of you probably know was bought by Pfizer, I think around 2000. I did the math once about 20 years on these, uh, 20 years ago on these stocks, figured out who bought them out, what the splits were, what they would be worth now. Uh, 20 years ago, it was painful. I don't even want to know what it would have been uh, today. So that was the portfolio that she left. And what my dad would do is every day he had a journal and he had all of the individual names of the, the stocks written down. And every day he would go to the paper and he would see what the prices were in the paper. And then he'd write down in the journal one by one what the price was. And then he'd look at it and then he'd close it up. And then the next day he'd get the paper and he'd do the same thing. And he did that for two years. And he continued to do it right through October of 1987 when his portfolio lost about 60, 70% of its value. So looking back on 1987 and the crash, there's four or five things that I think I took forward from there. The first is I never want to be passive in the market. Watching my dad write down those numbers every day, thinking he was doing something, thinking he was being active while his portfolio lost 60, 70% of its value left an impact on me. I don't ever want to be that person or I'm just at the whim of the market. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have long-term investments. I've got retirement accounts and things like that. But I want a significant part of my portfolio to be dynamic, to be active. I want to take agency in that because I don't want to ever sit through a situation like that. The second thing I learned is... And everybody knows this now, but at the time, these people were almost demigods. Brokers are caretakers. They're babysitters and they're salesmen. They're definitely not money managers and they are not your friend. And unfortunately, I saw how much damage they can do to someone's portfolio many times afterwards. For example, my mom, she ended up putting money later in life with a broker. And we have a family friend who has a not insignificant amount of money with a broker right now. And he's getting screwed. And you know how you tell when a broker is screwing someone, especially an older person? I saw this with my mom. I see this with our friend right now. You look at their statements and the broker has them in 45 different funds, all of which overlap with each other. And then you look at their file because older people usually keep files on everything that they get sent from their broker or their financial company. And you'll see just a 
massive stack of prospectus because every time they transfer the person into another fund, they have to, by law, send them a, a prospectus. So what these bastards do is they move them around into different funds because they only get paid when they churn them. And it's obscene. It is obscene what these brokers still get away with today. So I learned back then very early not to trust brokers. I mean, if you're going to put your money with someone to manage them, in my opinion, it has to be an RIA. It has to be someone that has like a, a fee-based system where your interests and their interests align. So if you make more money, they make more money. But any sort of transactional commission-based thing, it's just, uh, it's just the worst. Number three, experts don't know anything. Again, this seems so obvious now, but back then it wasn't that way. For example, Mr. Simpson, my teacher, he seemed like a genius at the beginning of the class. At the end of the class, you know he was freaking out. He had no idea what was going on. And if you listen to Buzz Schwartz on KMNY, the old school guy, he was freaking out. And if you watched the roundup like I did that night on all the financial news shows, the, the nightly business news, the, the business section of the, the uh, nightly news, nobody there predicted this, nobody saw this coming, and nobody knew what to do next. So that was a early lesson for me that don't listen to the experts, listen to yourself. Number four, recency bias is a bitch. Some people never got back into the market after the crash, including my mother. My dad died in December of that year. And a month after my dad died, my mom sold all the stocks. So she sold that portfolio when it was down about 60%. There was a little bit of a bounce at that point, but not much. You know what she did with the money? She paid off her mortgage, which her mortgage at that time was $23,000. She put the rest of the money market fund. And it wasn't until probably 30 years later that somehow through work, there was a thing where you could put some of your paycheck into a, a brokerage account that she got back into the market. But she sold at the low that, that week that the market crashed in 87, that final crash. It never went lower than that. The market went sideways for a little bit. And then two years later, guess what? All those losses had recovered. And that's the fifth thing I took away is the world never ends. Everybody thinks that the world ends when it's happening. And everybody thought that the world was ending in 1987, myself included. I mean, 23% in one day, that's ridiculous, right? But two years later, it was a memory. All those losses were covered. Yet, every time there's been a crash, the dot-com crash, the 9-11 crash, the financial crisis crash, the COVID crash, everybody thinks that's it. It's the end of the world. We'll never see you know, the highs again. That's where we are right now. Right now, there are people that are saying the same thing, who are going to get out of the market that will miss 10, 20, 30 years of upside. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually uh, forget 
Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.